0: Good morning. It is the twenty fifth of February, twenty twenty four, the second Sunday in Advent or in Lent, rather. <laughs> By the second Sunday, I should be able to get the difference between Advent and Lent, right? <laughs> it is going to be a little more casual of a stream on a Sunday. It's because it's a Sunday, and we're going to do two principal things here. We're going to talk about first a message from Viganò, hence why he is actually on the thumbnail of this, and the second is a um, a letter from a priest accusing francis of trying to destroy the church so um for those who only want for who for whatever reason clicked on this thumbnail or this this video or this podcast pin where you're seeing this and only want something positive and uplifting on a sunday we'll start with vegano's generally positive lent message and then from there we'll uh, go to the more meaty news kind of address from a priest on sundays i try to keep it a little more casual i try to reserve the public letters from bishops and priests to this day of the week, unless, of course, there's tons of them, like there were this last couple weeks. So let's go without dancing around this anymore to Archbishop Carlo Maria Viganò. He does have a fair amount of Latin in this. Um, Apologies in advance. My Latin is terrible. This is his uh, Ash Wednesday address. I know that was over a week ago, but uh, an Ash Wednesday address early in Lent still works. So from Vigano, he says, and I will not give you any more reproach among the nations. Let us change our habit in ashes and sackcloth. Let us fast and weep before the Lord, for our God is very merciful to forgive our sins. From Joel, chapter 2, verse 13. Memento homo kea pulvis es et in pulveram We heard these words spoken a few moments ago during the rite of the imposition of ashes. Remember, man, that you are dust, and to dust you shall return and as we prepare to enter the sacred penitential season of Lent in preparation for Passion Tide and the Most Holy Easter, it is certainly salutary to remind ourselves of where we have come from and what awaits us. We come from the dust, with which the Creator deigned to shape our bodies in which to infuse an immortal soul, making us in His image and likeness, destined for eternal bliss. With sin, we return to the dust of exile. Condemned to the loss of immortality, we mix the sweat of our brow with the dust of the clod, Called in Abraham to the promised land, we crossed the desert in dust. It was the du- in the dust that the forerunner preached, and in the dust of the rocks the Lord was tempted by Satan. Our innumerable sins humbled our Savior Jesus Christ amid the dust of Golgotha. Our mortal body will dissolve into dust after burial, awaiting the resurrection of the flesh at the end of time. The world will be consumed in dust when the eternal judge will come. The ancient monuments are dust. The documents of the sages are dust and all their precious fabrics are dust. And for our consolation, the dwellings of the wicked shall one day crumble to dust and their possessions, their money and their idols shall be scattered to dust. Like hay, they will soon wither. They will fall like grass in the meadow. See Psalm 36 uh, verse two. For the wicked shall be cut off, but he that hopeth in the Lord shall possess the earth. A little while longer and the wicked shall disappear. You shall seek his place and no longer find him. See Psalm 36, verses 9 to 10. Their infernal plans, their plans for domination, their programs, and their big restart will dissolve into dust. They too will end, while their dream of immortality and open defiance of Christ will crash before that cap, before that the ultimate uh, imposition, which no child of Adam can escape. The tomb will also open for them, and with it their, their particular judgment and their just condemnation. In the face of this destiny of dust that inexorably awaits everyone, we must carry imprinted in our minds that cross which, for a few hours, we will have marked on our foreheads with ashes, cause a humilitatis, because the cross alone is our only hope, spes unica, in the disillusion of ephemeral things, stat crux dum vulvetor orbis, but in order to love the cross, in order to understand its inevitability and necessity, if we want to be saved, it is necessary to understand, within the limits of our human frailty, what an ineffable miracle of charity moved the Most Holy Trinity, the triune Supreme God, to decree that the eternal word of the Father should become incarnate, suffer and die in order to redeem sinful humanity in Adam. Deus Caetas Est. See First John chapter 4, verse 8. The miracle of divine charity that consumes the sins of men in the flames of the most pure love of the immolated Son, and makes reparation for their infinite offense by sacrificing God to God, sacrificing the Son for the sins of the servant. And he didn't even goes so far as to make himself truly present in the most august sacrament of the altar until the end of time, so that the creature may be nourished by the Creator, so that the, that he in servitude may feed on his own deliverer. Catatas Eus in Nobis Consumata Est. See first John. Chapter four, verse 12. The magnificence of God shines forth in the creative work of the father who calls us into existence out of nothing in the redemptive work of the son who restores on the cross, the divine order broken by sin and in the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit who pours into souls, the infinite merits of the redemption through grace. And in this divine splendor, every creature is created in a unique and unrepeatable way. There is no vein of a single leaf that is the same as another and no two human beings are identical. Similarly, each soul is redeemed in an entirely unique way and in a completely unique way is touched by grace. The most holy trinity, precisely because almighty God has a personal relationship with every soul from the moment it is thought of and willed and loved. The father does not create series of things. The son does not redeem in distinct masses. The paraclete does not sanctify by chance. It is always a personal individual relationship, unique for the thousand ways that the Lord chooses to accompany us admonish us, encourage us, and reward us, or, God forbid, punish us. Each of us knows well how many infidelities we have to reproach ourselves with, and how many times God's mercy has lifted us up de stercore, and helped us to progress in his love. But just as the creative, redemptive, and sanctifying action of the Most Holy Trinity is manifested in a different and unique way for each one of us, so also our relationship with God is personally unique, which obviously does not exclude the meditation of the church and responding and corresponding to the Lord's will. This means that the good deeds we perform, the sacrifices we accept, the penances and fasts we undertake, and the prayers we recite rise before the divine majesty with our name written on them, so to speak. Regato domini oretto mea secut incensium in conspectu tuo, elevatio manuum mea sacrificium verspertinium. See Psalm one forty, verse two. In that name known only to the omniscience of God, remains there even when those good works are placed in the treasury of graces together with the infinite merits of our Lord and those of all the saints from which Providence draws. This is a great consolation because it makes each of us truly unique in God's plan. But for the same reason, our faults, our sins are also individual and unique. Play the prophet Christ, who is it who struck you? See Matthew chapter 26, verse 68. Each one of our sins, let us meditate on it often, especially during the season of Lent, is a spit in the face of Christ, a blow of a reed that plunges the thorns of the crown into his head. Each of our sins is a whip that tears his flesh, a blow of the scourge that rips it open, a blow of a hammer in the palm of his hands, a spear that wounds the side. Those blows, those slaps, those spittings have our name written on them, as do the sharp arrows with which we pierce the immaculate heart of his most holy mother, mystic- mystically united to the passion of the Son. But if present events in the infernal attack of the enemy see us engaged in an exhausting conflict that too often distracts us from prayer, recollection, and penance, during this sacred season of Lent we are called to exercise the spirit as in the training of the soul, to strengthen in the love of God, in union with his passion, and in flight from sin. Thus, just as a soldier engages in those disciplines in which he will later find himself fighting, so the faithful, who are soldiers of Christ, cannot effectively face the spiritual combat without first having trained themselves in the struggle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. The prayer placed at the end of the imposition of ashes uses a clearly military terminology nobis domine, presedia milite sanctus in cochere huhunus, contra spiritalis nequatus pugnature contintea exolio. And my apologies for my Latin. And if the daily battle we have to take sides mainly against external enemies, during Lent our first enemy is ourselves, starting with our dominant defect, because the implements that the Lord puts at our disposal must find us capable of wielding them while too often we believe that we can enter the battlefield relying on our own strength. in Let us change our behavior. Let us reform our conduct in sackcloth and ashes. That is keeping our eternal destiny firmly in mind and with it the transience of the things of this world. Let us change the perspective from which we observe events, considering that all our actions, good and bad, do not remain nameless, nor without reward or punishment. We cannot take society, the hierarchy, our rulers, the subversives of the novus ordo seclorum, the traitors, the wicked, or the lukewarm, as pretext for our own indolence, trying to justify our conduct, or to escape from the ashes and sackcloth, that is, from the spirit of penance and renunciation of the things of this world, which is the only place we can be trained for humility and holiness. Non declinis cormeum in verbe malete, at excusandas excusianus in peccatis. see Psalm 140, verse 4. Because God's judgment is personal, and the merit of our action is individual, may the iniquities of others therefore spur us on to remedy, repair, and expiate, rather than becoming an alibi we hide behind. Amendamus in Melius, let us make reparation for the evil committed in our ignorance, so that when we are suddenly seized by the day of our judgment, we do not look in vain for time to repent when it will not be possible for us to find it. Let us look to the most blessed virgin, chosen by the most holy trinity, to be the living tabernacle of God incarnate, her blessed fiat, personal and formulated in the silence of interiority, made our redemption possible. May it be our daily model of obedience to the Lord's will, and especially in this propitious time of fasting and penance. And so may it be. Signed, Carla Maria Viganò, Archbishop. On Ash Wednesday, February 14th, 2024. You may think, well, a couple of weeks after Ash Wednesday, why are we bringing this up? Well, in Ash Wednesday homily in the early parts of Lent is still appropriate. Especially now when you might be hitting that place in Lent where your personal penances, your personal sacrifices, whatever positive things you may have picked up or maybe you had been trying to correct some laxity in your life, whatever it is, you may have fallen off of that. And so being reminded of these things is good because it's never too late to pick back up something that you were supposed to be doing or to give up again, something you should, that you plan to give up during Lent. It's never too late. And it's good to be reminded of these things. I'm going to check some of the, uh, I'm going to just check the live chat here before we go on to the newsletter, which for those of you joining late, will probably be very happy to see, um, it's lively conversation happening here. (laughs) Um, all right. So let's just move on with the time we have left. To this, which comes from a German priest, I know there are. I know that'll surprise you, given up the the amount of time the Germans have been in the news lately in the church, which never for good reasons. You have a German church priest who issues this public letter, and in LifeSite published the English version. He says Pope Francis's fight against the Latin Mass is a fight against the church. It's by a priest named Father Joachim Heimerl. So. Um, it was uh, published initially on Marco Tosati's website, but LifeSite provided a better translation. So it published a few days ago. I like to give these websites a few days to let people read them before I put them up. Um, I will try to put this uh, link to the show notes at returntotradition.org after this is over. So, So if you want to read this or the other one. So here's from the priest saying that the things that Francis is doing is an attempt to basically destroy the church says, anyone who has wondered why Francis not only rejects the traditional Mass, but persecutes it, has recently received an answer from his own lips. The Pope is not concerned with beautiful rites or Latin. Instead, Francis believes that the Second Vatican Council made the reform of the Church dependent on the reform of the Mass. Anyone who is even slightly informed knows that this is wrong. What's more, Pope Paul VI's liturgical reform went far beyond the Council's proposals and led to a dramatic downfall of the Church. But what does the persecution of the Old Mass say about Francis? A simple answer would be that he, like most Jesuits, has no sense when it comes to liturgy. Even worse for him, the Mass is merely a vehicle for church reform, which means that it is ultimately a political instrument. The loveless, even garbled papal liturgies that we are currently experiencing bear eloquent witness to that. A more nuanced answer emerges when one studies the so-called Ottaviani notes. But what are they? Cardinal Alfredo Ottaviani turned to Paul VI in 1969 and expressed his reservations about the new Mass in writing. After all, Odoviani had been prefect for the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, and his voice was respected. His verdict was scathing and underlined the importance of the traditional Mass as a complete monument of the Catholic faith, as taught by all councils. The new Mass, on the other hand, was deficient and dangerous. It ultimately represented a new church. If we apply this idea to our question, a clear picture emerges. The fight against the traditional Mass is a fight against the truths of the Church, but this also means that the old and new Masses are incompatible. John Paul II and Benedict XVI tried to strike a pragmatic balance here. Both forms of Mass existed side by side. Ultimately, however, they simulated a continuity that never really existed and hoped to preserve the unity of the Church. The problems that Odoviani recognized, however, remained unsolved. Things have now come to a head under Francis. For him, Church unity is no longer the top priority. He is primarily concerned with implementing his reforms, and only from this point of view can his attitude toward the traditional Mass be understood. Francis is concerned with the rejection of church tradition as a whole. After all, a pope who allows uh, people to violate their marriage vows and James Martin pairings to be blessed can no longer refer to the Church of Christ and the teaching of the apostles, including when he wants to appoint deaconesses in the near future. His pontificate marks a historic rupture, which is also a rupture with the Old Mass. According to Otto Vianney, the desacralization and Protestantization of the new mass already laid the foundation for this disaster. The sacrificial character and the real presence are hardly experienced in it anymore, and are even entirely absent from the problematic second Eucharistic prayer. Overall, the mass remains limited to the definition of a meal. There is no longer any mention of the representation of the sacrifice on the cross, and there is no trace of the sacrifice of praise to the most holy trinity or the expiatory sacrifice. Otto Vianney writes, None of the essential dogmatic values of the Mass, which constitute its true definition, can be found here. In addition, the role of the priest is minimalized, distorted, falsified, and no longer differs in any way from a Protestant religious minister. Instead, the people seem to be clothed with autonomous priestly powers. As, for example, in the Third Eucharistic Prayer, the impression is created that the people, not the priest, are the indispensable element for the celebration. What Ottaviani denounces as a heresy of the new Mass is now to take definitive form in the faith of the Church under Francis. As a, quote, monument to the true faith, the traditional Mass stands in the way of this and must therefore be eliminated according to the Pope's will. His battle against the Old Mass is, in truth, a battle against the Church, and that is the only reason why it is so significant and is being fought so hard. Altoviani considered the New Mass a fatal blunder by Paul VI, which would have unforeseeable consequences. He was right, and Paul VI also recognized this in the end. Shocked, he stated in 1972 that the smoke of Satan had entered the church through some crack. No wonder Paul himself had opened this crack with the new Mass. He is said to have regretted his blunder from then on, but he never revised it. He was certainly not unaffected by the fact that Ottaviani pointed out at the end of his letter that Pope Pius V had condemned anyone who dared to lay a hand on the traditional Mass. And even if this warning of the wrath of Almighty God was addressed to Paul VI at the time, it is equally valid for Francis today. Ultimately, every pope is a just steward from whom the Lord will demand a clear account. However, for the life of me, I cannot imagine that turning away from the truths of Holy Scripture in doctrine and liturgy can correspond to his will. The verdict on this pontificate could, therefore, be just as harsh as this pope's fight against the church. (laughs) That is a uh, pretty spicy letter from a German priest. His ultimate point is that, of course, That Francis will will have to answer for everything he does, and he will answer to it to the ultimate authority, to Almighty God, to whom he is supposed to be his vicar. Even if Francis apparently doesn't like the the title vicar of Christ, finding it antiquated and relegated to a historic title of the papacy. All right, let's take a look in the live chat. Good morning to everyone else. David Wilson asked, "Wasn't it Paul VI who exiled Bugnini?" Yes, it was. Yes, it was. it was Paul VI who exiled Bugnini. There is, however, some scholarship that suggests that Bugnini was a ghostwriter for Humane Vitae and that Humane Vitae was some sort of feint, at least for Bugnini. I don't know for Paul VI. But, yes, he was the one who exiled Bugnini who because he discovered he was a stonecutter. Well, he never said the reason, but it was because he was a stonecutter. He said it was, for some reason, he, he actually, the reason he said was that, that Bugnini was something worse than a stonecutter. And I don't know what that would be, except for that opening chapter of Windswept House, for those who've read it. It's about the only thing I can think of that would be worse than a stone cutter. Alan says, Latin should have been kept when I was in elementary school. I, I think, I wish it had been in the uh, public schools. Honestly, I mean, Latin is a useful language for learning other languages. Uh, I've always had trouble with languages. The only one I had any success with when I was in high school is Japanese. And even then it was only first year. Second year Japanese was when they started introducing the multiple different alphabets and then I was lost. But yeah, I wish like my, I trip over Latin, which is really bad look for a traditional Catholic, but I can't help it in my head. I can pronounce it correctly, but then there's something that happens lost in the delivery. Um, Let's see. Francis is aware of Lex orandi lex credendi, lex vivendi also. That why that's why he wants to get rid of the TLM to make way for his modernist church. I mean that's basically right. He admitted that the traditional mass is no longer compatible with the ecclesiology of the Catholic Church, which is sort of the fancy theology of or fancy phrasing for the theology that basically gives the church its identity. What is the Catholic Church? The ecclesiology of it. And they, he said that the same mass for, that developed organically from apostolic times to the 1960s was no longer compatible with the, with the theology of the church. This is why I uh, don't believe it, a, the, in the hermeneutic of continuity. It's because he himself torched it with that statement, that there is no continuity. Um, but yeah, that is a very spicy kind of letter, and I will uh, put that up on the uh, in my show notes here just a few minutes after we're done here but this is your chance to get any final thoughts in i do try to keep on you know on sundays a little again these letters instead of like a lot of hard-hitting news because it's a sunday right if there was something a news story that i couldn't pass up obviously we'd go over it but and i mean, it like news can wait till tomorrow as far as i'm concerned because it's a sunday and we should try to keep it a little low tier even if that is a pretty spicy letter for a sunday um good morning to you in singapore uh all right, folks, there is, uh, anything else anybody wants to mention in the chat? Uh, well, one, please spell my name right. Two, I don't know. Vegan is not part of the SSPX. so I don't know what you're talking about. And I have no idea what you mean by he rejects all the popes from bat- from Vati- after Vatican two, literally nothing you said there was correct. So yeah. Um, What order is the most traditional? Uh, If you look for religious orders, there are religious variants of any of the orders except the Jesuits. So I I would look for traditional Dominicans, traditional Benedictines, traditional Carmelites. I mean, any religious order is going to have some sort of traditional variant. But a lot these days, their public mass offerings are going to be restricted heavily because of their own documents that didn't get as much attention as they should have when they were released. Um, all right, folks, thanks for tuning in today. Nico, let me send you a link and look into it. No, I, I don't need to, because he's not part of the SSPX and he doesn't, and he's not a set of a contest. So I don't need to look into it. If you're talking about that rumor about vegano, okay. So there's a concerted effort to tear, to bring vegano down. I've noticed this for the last several weeks and last several months. And I had it pretty much confirmed. That there is a consor- coordinated effort to take him down, and it's part of that is a rumor. This nonsensical rumor that he had himself consecrated by a as a bishop by the Marian Corps or something by the SSPX resistance, which is an offshoot of the SSPX. They're not even part of the society. It's a rumor. Until Vigano confirms it himself, don't trust it it's there has been a concerted efforts i've seen a lot of anti vegano articles coming in some of them from uh, quasi traditional sources so there is an attempt to tear him down right now and i don't know why but this is just that rumor is just part of it so i don't need to read the thing yes it's a rumor nico in italy it's a very big thing no nico it's a rumor until vegano confirms it himself it's a rumor doesn't matter how big the rumor is let him confirm it himself okay and I I don't care about any particular thesis on Benedict being the real pope. I, it's not something that concerns me that much. I would if I would not be surprised if someday a pope ruled in favor of one of the fifteen different hypotheses about Benedict being the real pope. It wouldn't surprise me. But there's nothing I can do about it, so I don't spend my time on it. All right, folks. Thanks for tuning in today. As always, pray for the church. I'm Anthony Stein. Ave Maria.